Axis Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, Blackstone bets again on Vegas and why President Trump may have a fictional economic advisor. But first, what we learned from last night's Democratic debate. So last evening, a dozen presidential hopefuls spent three hours on stage in Ohio for CNN. They were mostly unified on impeaching President Trump. They rehashed old disagreements on health care. They took a more strident tone against big tech, and they didn't get asked much of all on trade, immigration, climate or racial injustice. Now, from a horse race perspective, it was pretty clear that the balance of primary power has shifted from Joe Biden to Elizabeth Warren, at least in the minds of other candidates who made Warren their preferred pinata, with Warren usually handling it pretty well. Outside of her notable unwillingness to say that Medicare for all would include middle class tax increases to pay for it, even if overall middle class spending were to decrease. Other candidates, particularly Pete Buttigieg, went hard after Warren, not only to dent her candidacy, but also to become a more viable alternative to Biden for those more centrist voters who think the Veep has lost a step. The bottom line is that for those who are already paying attention, the debate didn't offer much new in terms of policy or rhetoric. Well, maybe except for a couple candidates expressing openness to Andrew Yang's universal basic income plan. But overall, it was a reminder that Democrats will focus their campaign on defeating incumbents, not just the one in the White House, but also the ones in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street. In 15 seconds, we'll be joined by Axios political reporter Lexi McCammond, who was in Ohio for the debate. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Know everything about coding, but not so much about banking? For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has been helping high-growth companies navigate through each stage of the startup journey. Stay tuned to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. We're joined now by Axios political reporter Alexi McCammond, who was in Westerville, Ohio last night. Sometimes these things play differently in the room than they do on TV. So what was your big takeaway as you walked out of there last night? Well, the big takeaway that I saw was that everyone sort of has woken up, everyone on the Democratic stage has woken up and realized that it's not Joe Biden who is the front runner of their field. It is Senator Elizabeth Warren. And that's something that I feel like as reporters, we've been watching and seeing as she's been climbing in the polls and her rallies have been attracting, you know, thousands of people. But everyone has sort of been treating Joe Biden as the de facto front runner, and they've been treating Bernie Sanders as the de facto policy standard bearer of the party. That really changed last night. We saw Elizabeth Warren getting attacks from all sides of the stage. We saw the ways in which the moderators made her the de facto policy standard bearer of the party. And I think that puts her in an even stronger position moving forward, because that was the first time she had to experience fighting back against attacks from her colleagues who otherwise focused on Joe Biden or Beto O'Rourke instead of her. How do you think she did? Because obviously you're right. She took a lot of incoming. I thought outside of the issue about tax increases for Medicare for all, she did pretty well. But I'm curious, what were your thoughts on how she handled it, particularly, say, compared to Biden in the first debate, who was kind of the person who everyone was aiming at? And he didn't fare too well when that happened. Biden was totally unprepared for those attacks in the first debate. Elizabeth Warren stands out because I think that she is prepared for these types of attacks simply by the way that she responds to things that are negative or maybe don't shine the best light on her plans or policies. She sort of knows how to either retreat when it's necessary and let the others duke it out on stage, which we've seen her do in every other debate except for last night. But last night, she obviously couldn't do that. So we saw what she normally does 
which is give clear, concise, and strong answers. She doesn't really engage in emotional fights, even when there was a moment between her and Biden, and Biden was sort of waving his hand at her and basically saying that he was the reason for her success. On the Consumer Financial Protection Board, yeah. Exactly. She didn't respond in an emotional way. And that's not me saying something about women being emotional. Joe Biden's response to her was pretty emotional and passionate. She sort of gave a clear, measured response, thanked Obama for that instead, and moved on. Through a lot of shade by only thanking Obama on that. One of the things that Warren talked a lot about, but she wasn't alone, Sanders did, even Biden did a bit, was this issue of big tech and antitrust and monopoly. And that was partially because the moderators asked it. You've been going around the country talking with voters, particularly swing voters. Does this issue of big tech, whether it be Facebook or Google or Amazon, Is this something from your perspective that voters care about, or is this a Beltway coastal reporter issue that we care about? Dan, I have to be honest that I have not heard it come up from a single person when I've been on the campaign trail, not just in those swing voter focus groups you mentioned that we do in that for Midwest, but when I'm at rallies of supporters of these candidates or on the campaign trail or at presidential forums. And that's the other interesting thing. We've had so many different niche presidential forums this cycle, whether it's for LGBTQ rights or focusing on black women or gun reform. We haven't had a single presidential forum around big tech or those issues. And I don't know if that's something that a group would be planning on doing, but it sort of suggests to me that that's not even really at the top of voters' minds, Democratic voters' minds nationally, because that's what those presidential forums reflect, the issues that the voters care most about. And we haven't really heard a lot about big tech outside of the Beltway. There obviously were a bunch of big hot button issues that didn't get discussed last night. Obviously, 12 candidates, even three hours. There's only limited time. Was there one that stood out to you as the big myth? I guess you could say even from the moderators not getting into, again, in the context of what you see voters caring about. That's a good question. I feel like the I'm always disappointed in the healthcare discussion because the moderators make it such a big deal, but they make it a big deal only from the stance of dividing the field on where they stand relative to Medicare for all. That's only so helpful. And it's really not that helpful, especially after we've had three debates before last night that focused a lot of time on that. When I talk to voters and hear from voters around the country, they share deeply personal stories about how they're one accident away, like a medical accident away from going into bankruptcy. They share stories of not being able to afford their medication anymore. They share stories of friends or family members they know who have died because they can't get the access to health care that they need. And those are deeply personal stories about things, whether that's mental health or prescription drugs or otherwise, that simply just don't come up in a legitimate way in these debates. I was happy to see that they talked about the opioid epidemic. I wish that there were more talk about mental health because that's something that actually comes up a lot, whether I'm in Iowa or Pennsylvania or Nevada. I hear that come up every state I'm in with any type of voter. And that suggests to me that people around the country are dealing with this on a personal level that isn't getting the national attention that they feel it deserves. We started this by you saying that Elizabeth Warren kind of took the policy standard bearer mantle from Sanders on the left side of the party. But as the debate was ending, news started coming out that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is preparing to endorse Sanders. So I'm curious, from a primary perspective, did Warren win the debate, but Sanders win the night? I think that... I wouldn't go so far as to say that Sanders won the night, but I think that this is a big moment for him with Representative Ocasio-Cortez slated to endorse him. I feel like this is sort of a critical moment in his campaign. And had she not announced that she was going to endorse him or had she not decided to endorse him, 
she probably would have felt like she didn't do everything in her power to help him get elected. And so I think that this is a moment where Sanders' campaign could go forward in a way that it might not have otherwise without her support, and especially after the heart attack he had and people sort of questioning his fitness to continue on the campaign trail. But I think that she's sort of coming in in a critical moment that, you know, sort of makes the debates almost obsolete for him going forward. He's going to do what he's been doing at every other debate, which is staying strong and standing in the top three no matter what. But now he'll have the support of AOC and two other members of the squad, Representative Ilhan Omar. Does that help him a lot in Iowa and New Hampshire? Since those are the first two, obviously, if he loses to Warren and both of them, it would be problematic. So do those endorsements move a needle for him there? I'm not sure that they will move a needle in Iowa and New Hampshire, but Bernie has been doing fine in Iowa, New Hampshire so far. I think if anything, it'll bring in some of the younger voters of color who might not necessarily be sold on Bernie Sanders this time around in the way that they were enamored with him in the 2016 election. Alexa McCammon, Axios political reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. My final two right after this. Earlier, we highlighted Silicon Valley Bank's experience with helping startups. But with Silicon Valley Bank, you're also getting a partner committed to supporting you as you strive to hit your next milestones. Perhaps that's why 50% of VC-backed tech and life science companies choose Silicon Valley Bank. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the Blackstone Group, the private equity giant that has become one of America's largest landlords, whether that be owning single family rental homes or giant logistics warehouses for e-commerce. So Blackstone's latest property play is in Las Vegas, where yesterday it agreed to buy the Bellagio Hotel and Resort. And for those not familiar with Vegas stripology, the Bellagio is the one with the giant fountains out front. Anyway, Blackstone will pay four and a quarter billion dollars to buy Bellagio from MGM Resorts International and then lease it back to MGM for day-to-day operations. In financial parlance, that's called a sale leaseback. Why it matters for Blackstone is that this is a very different model from when it bought out Vegas's Cosmopolitan Hotel and Casino several years ago, which worked out pretty well, or when it helped buy out Harrah's years before that, which worked out terribly. So this one, the Bellagio, will determine if Blackstone wins or gets busted in Vegas. And finally, Ron Ara. Never heard of him? That's okay. He doesn't actually exist. But you wouldn't know that by reading the books of White House economic advisor Peter Navarro, where Ron Vara has been regularly quoted as a knowledgeable economist. For example, Navarro talked about how Vara placed short bets on nuclear power-reliant companies just days before the Chernobyl disaster. Pretty prescient, you know, again, if Vara was real. As first discovered by the Chronicle Review, Ron Vara is just an anagram of Navarro's last name. And when confronted yesterday with the fakery, Navarro admitted that Vara is his fictional alter ego, a fun, quote, inside joke. An inside joke so insular that Navarro didn't even share it with one of his co-authors, who isn't too thrilled about the discovery. Gotta wonder what else in the books is made up. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Jesse Lee, have a great National Hagfish Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.